This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of uh, speaking with Dr. Carlos Martinez Gomez from the Institut Universitaire de Cancer de Toulouse in Toulouse, France. Um, really excited and looking forward to the discussion on this uh, lead article. This is actually a review article on urinary diversion after pelvic exenteration for gynecologic uh, malignancy. So welcome, Carlos. Great to have you on the podcast. So, uh, thank you very much, Pedro. Thank you very much uh, to the journal and to the audience. Uh, uh, in the name of the authors uh, and uh, our team, uh, we would like to thank you for the invitation for, to the podcast and to the review. Uh, for us, it's a pleasure to participate uh, in this interesting discussion uh, regarding pelvic exenteration and uh, uh, urinary reconstruction. Perfect. Yes, we're looking forward to it. Um, I wanted to first start with a very uh, a broad question as to discussing who is the ideal candidate for a uh, urinary reconstruction uh, when performing uh, pelvic exenteration. Uh, so to summarize, uh, uh, who can be the ideal candidate to perform a urinary reconstruction uh, in pelvic exenteration? We could say that uh, continent diversion are usually proposed uh, for those patients with a favorable prognosis, uh, such as those patients with an isolated pelvic relapse uh, after a lung disease-free interval, or in cases of radio-induced specific vaginal fistula. Anyway, uh, this candidate for continent diversion should be strongly motivated. Uh, nevertheless, uh, continent diversion may be also considered in some patients undergoing palliative surgery. Uh, to be more concrete, for Miami Pouch, it is also necessary to think about the remaining bowel vascularization and the colon length in case uh, of performing a total pelvic exenteration. In case of uh, orthopedic bladder, it requires sphincteric competence and the possibility of conservation of the bladder neck. Uh, for the rest of the patient, the breaker ileal conduit uh, is, uh, in general, the alternative uh, to be proposed. Yeah. So one of the things that you know often um, comes up in, in discussion is. Um, who is the ideal surgeon to perform a urinary uh, reconstruction? And, and certainly love to hear your thoughts as to whether you consider that that should be the gynecologic oncologist or should it be a urologist independently or should it be both? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, this is a difficult question, but uh, from my point of view, urinary reconstruction should be performed by those surgeons who have followed a specific training and know the different techniques and how to manage the complications related to each procedure. I believe that uh, this procedure goes beyond a single specialty and requires long training since it's combined two parts the surgical resection, uh, the oncological resection, and reconstructive procedures in the same patient. So this is why it's so important to promote fellowship programs in accredited centers in gynecology, oncology, as the ESGO Society has done in the last year. So 
uh, urinary reconstruction should be performed by surgical oncologists, which include the multidisciplinary teams composed by gynecologists, uh, urologists, gastrointestinal surgeons, but also we do not forget, for example, interventional radiologists. And uh, like uh, in breast uh, reconstruction, patients should have a choice between different techniques. So it would be the same uh, for the urinary reconstruction. Yeah. And, and as a follow-up to that, um, you know, certainly um, the majority of gynecologic oncologists uh, do, do not perform urinary diversion on a regular and routine basis. So, so one of the questions that I wanted to just hear your thoughts on, uh, what, what should be the ideal number of urinary diversions to achieve proficiency when doing this type of surgery? Uh, you know, how many per year do you consider it adequate? So uh, this question first uh, uh, leads us uh, to talk about the need uh, of centralization of pelvic exenteration in tertiary referral centers because it has since shown that resexual margins, postoperative complications and outcomes are better when well-trained surgeons perform these procedures. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, it's not established the ideal number of urinary reconstruction, but uh, considering uh, SGO quality indicators for the surgical treatment of cervical cancer and ovarian cancer, the threshold should be established uh, around 10 diversions per surgeon and per year. And uh, as an example, uh, more than half of urologists perform less than five cases of urinary diversion per year in the United States. Mm. Uh, in our center, uh, we have uh, currently performed about uh, 280 pelvic exenteration in the last uh, 15 years, and mostly have been uh, performed by the same surgeon. And uh, I believe that this concentration has allowed us to develop and innovate uh, new techniques, uh, such as the DIEP for the vaginal reconstruction and the uh, orthopic uh, neobladder. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, so so I wanted to actually be, and we're going to talk about the, the the different types of neobladders and in, in, including the orthotopic neobladder as well. But I wanted to start by, um, you know, the the, the procedures that are not routinely performed, uh, and and let's let's talk about those first, and then get into the more commonly performed uh, procedures. And by the way, you, you're, you demonstrate really great graphics in the, in the article. I certainly encourage all of our readers to look at them. But uh, specifically, uh, talking about the ureterosigmoidostomy and a double-barrel wet colostomy, um, what are the differences uh, between those and why are those not done routinely? So uh, to summarize, uh, the two main differences uh, uh, between these two techniques are related to the continence of the technique at, and the presence of stoma. So we know that the ureterosigmoidostomy is a continent technique where the ureters are anastomosed into the sigmoid and the urine voiding is performed simultaneously with defecation by the anus. Uh, this technique, uh, uh, it's a good alternative for those patients who have uh, a limited access to healthcare services, uh, such as in low-income uh, countries. 
However, the, the main limitation of erythrocytomy uh, is the risk of secondary malignancy. Mm-hmm. Um, up to 50% of patients uh, that can develop a colorectal carcinoma at a long-term evaluation. Uh, the other technique, uh, you, you answer me, uh, the double barrelet wet colostomy is an incontinent technique, contrary to the previous one, uh, that associates two independent systems, a terminal colostomy and a urinary reservoir made about uh, with uh, 15 centimeters of sigmoid colon, and they exit at the same stomach site. Uh, this uh, second technique is especially indicated for fecal and urinary diversions mm-hmm. in those patients with uh, unrecyclable pelvic tumors or ex- ex- extensive fistula. Uh, moreover, uh, we should consider this technique for patients with uh, pre-existing terminal colostomy. Mm-hmm. Um, contrary to what uh, might think, uh, the urinary infection rate is uh, low. It's similar to the ileal conduit since uh, the urine and the fecal evacuation are independent. And the main advantage presented by the double barrelet gut colostomy is that uh, yeah, there is just a single stoma that uh, simplifies the, the stomach care. Yeah. So now let's, let's talk a little bit about the more common uh, procedures, the bricker, the bricker ileal conduit. Uh, what is it and what are some of the advantages and potential disadvantages of this uh, approach? Yeah, so <clears throat> just uh, as an overview, the brachial conduit represents uh, the most frequently performed diversion uh, worldwide. Uh, since uh, this technique uh, was described, uh, it rapidly became the cornerstone of urinary diversion due to its low surgical complexity and its low complication rates. So to perform this uh, this technique, uh, a 20 centimeter segment of ileum in a peristaltic orientation is harvested at least 15 centimeters away from the ileocecal valve to prevent vitamin B12 and bile salt malabsorption. Then uh, the ureter are anastomosed to the proximal end of the conduit while the distal end is used to create the stoma. Uh, there are two alternatives for performing urethroenteric anastomosis, either separate or joined. Uh, the two techniques uh, do not present major differences. Uh, in our case, we prefer to perform the Wallace 2 technique, where both urethers are joined and anastomose head to head to the to, with the conduit. Uh, so regarding uh, the complication of the this technique of the brachial conduit, apart from the incontinence that is uh, inherent to the technique, the probably the stomach-related complications that represent the main disadvantage of this uh, technique. Uh, these uh, include uh, the parastomal hernia infection, mucosal bleeding, and skin irritation. Um, probably to avoid uh, such a complication, we should not forget that the stoma therapist should preoperatively mark the stoma as it has been demonstrated that this decreased the risk uh, of uh, postoperative uh, stoma-related complication. Uh, as advantage, uh, the low cost of the urostomy material and the rapid acquisition of patients' autonomy for stoma management probably represent the two main advantages of uh, Riker ileal conduit. Yeah, and um, what about the 
content in Conduit. Uh, I think that the probably most centers are performing the uh, Miami Pouch, uh, and I was wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about what that is and what are some of the advantages and, and disadvantages of the Miami Pouch. Yeah, uh, so uh, as you said, uh, uh, there are many types of, of uh, continent conduit uh, uh, described in the literature, and they they change, they depend on the bowel segment employed. Uh, as you said, uh, uh, the Miami pouch is the most frequently and preferred technique uh, performed by our team uh, to create uh, the, the, this uh, reconstruction, to create uh, uh, this derivation. Uh, this continent pouch is uh, made uh, with uh, 25 centimeters uh, segment of the right column for the reservoir, a 15 centimeter segment of the ileum to create the valve. Mm -hmm. uh, the stoma positioning is adapted to the patient preference. Uh, in general, it is placed uh, in the umbilicus uh, due to cosmetic uh, uh, reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, to explain the continence of this uh, pouch, it is driven by the differences in pressures between the low, pre uh, the low pressure compliant colonic reservoir and the narrow and contractile distal ileum, together with the anti-reflux mechanism of the iliocecal valve. Mm -hmm. So its capacity can reach uh, around 500 milliliters and require uh, intermittent self catheterization every six uh, hours, every six uh, eight hours. Uh, probably the main advantages of this uh, technique uh, are the absence of a urostomy bag, the high capacity for urine storage, and the self body image for the patient. Uh, what is crucial uh, is the motivation and the engagement with of the patient uh, when performing this technique uh, because the learning curve uh, to uh, to learn to perform the self catheterization may be longer compared with uh, other techniques yeah and and you previously mentioned also the orthotopic ileal neobladder and i know that there have been a number of publications not many uh, but there have been a number uh, that talk about this as an option. Um, can you talk a little bit as to what that is for those that are not familiar with it? And is who, who is the ideal candidate for this type of uh, neobladder? So the the orthotopic neobladder uh, is, uh, we could say that is the urinary reconstruction that most closely resembles the native bladder. And uh, we should only consider this option when the urethra and the bladder neck uh, can be spared during the surgery. So the principle is to create a low pressure reservoir using 50 centimeters of ileal length, which are anastomosed and it will rise to the bladder neck. Uh, we usually employ the Y-shaped reservoir since it provides uh, a large capacity for urinary storage and it's simplicity to perform the anastomosis, although there, there exists, uh, uh, there exists uh, other techniques uh, to create uh, uh, the pouch. Uh, so, uh, as you said, probably the selection of the correct patient for this technique uh, is uh, the key. Uh, so, 
to select this patient, uh, we should base on physical examination of the patient, uh, absence uh, of stress, urinary incontinence, uh, urodynamic test, uh, and the capacity to perform an effective valsalva maneuver or abdominal pushing for reservoir voiding by the patient. Uh, in fact, uh, there is a large experience uh, on orthotopic neobladder uh, within the field of urology, uh, while the experience on gynecology oncology is more limited, with the largest series published, uh, including only six patients. Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, publication I'm talking about uh, by Professor Chiva, the main problem was that only 50% of the patients were continent daytime and nighttime, mm. although I, I think I believe that this result probably be improved at long term if the patient follow uh, pelvic floor exercises. Uh, personally, in our short experience, the best candidates the, the best candidates for this technique uh, are those who present a radio-induced uh, vesicovaginal fistula with a, with a residual tumor after external radiotherapy in which uh, graft-gi therapy cannot be delivered. Mm. Great. And now, Carlos, I wanted to ask you, um, changing gears a little bit, uh, onto the perioperative care. Tell us what, what are some of the special things you, you perform or you need to do to keep in mind in the immediate post-operative period when taking care of patients who undergo urinary diversion? Yeah, so uh, the post-operative care after urinary reconstruction uh, should first follow the ERAS program that uh, you know uh, well. Uh, first, uh, we should remark on the essential role of the stomatherapist during the postoperative uh, period, uh, especially uh, with continent diversion. Uh, so we should closely monitor the urine outflow, the renal function, and the ionic metabolic balance to prevent and to detect potential complication. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, one of the problems uh, we, we can see uh, frequently is the urinary uh, obstruction. So uh, uh, this urinary obstruction is uh, created by cellular detritus and the, col uh, the colonic mucus. Uh, and the stain place uh, down during the surgery can help us uh, and we can uh, uh, employ it uh, to flush uh, gently with uh, with uh, sterile saline water twice mm -hmm. uh, per day, the first few days, uh, in particular with the colonic reservoir such as the Miami pouch, which uh, produce uh, uh, among quantities of, of mucus. Um, in our institution for the continent and incontinent diversions, uh, a CT urography with pouch of pacification is performed around the 10th and the 12th postoperative day to rule out incompetent, uh, uh, incomplete wound healing. Mm -hmm. uh, then, if everything is okay, the pigtails of tents are removed. And the patient uh, is observed uh, for several days to initiate the self-catheterization for the Miami pouch or the Malsalva maneuver uh, in case of uh, orthoscopic uh, neobladder reconstruction. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask yeah, you, so as, as a follow-up to that, uh, the 
Um, use of antibiotics, uh, and, and I, I know that there's variations in terms of practices in different institutions, even amongst different surgeons. Do you, in your institution, uh, routinely keep patients on post-operative antibiotics after urinary diversion? And then also as a follow-up question to that, um, do you routinely perform uh, cultures, uh, urinary cultures in, in these patients? Uh, to both uh, questions, the, the answer is uh, no, we don't, <clears throat> because uh, it was uh, demonstrated that routine postoperative antibiotics uh, uh, is uh, is not useful, and we only treat with antibiotics in case of clinical infection, either uh, abdominal infection, urinary infection, but not uh, systematically. Uh, before stem removal, uh, urinary cultures were used routinely in the past, uh, although uh, they mostly demonstrate uh, asymptomatic colonization by uh, enteric germs that do not warrant any, any treatment because yeah. uh, obviously uh, the re reconstruction uh, uh, is made uh, with, uh, with the bowel. Uh, likewise, uh, preoperative mechanical bowel preparation and oral antibiotic bowel preparation are no longer recommended because uh, uh, they, they did not reduce the complication rates. Yeah, that's interesting also regarding the, the bowel preparations um, and certainly encourage everyone to read about that in the uh, in the manuscript. Now, I wanted to uh, start focusing on uh, some of the early uh, complications that, that you see uh, after urinary diversion. And I was wondering also if you could speak um, specifically about some of the anastomotic leaks uh, from the ureter to the neobladder. Uh, how frequent are these and, and how should they be addressed? So, uh, talking about early complication, uh, they are in general common to all types of urinary reconstruction and highlight the complexity uh, of the surgery. Uh, they are very frequent and can be observed in around two-thirds of the patient. Uh, the general complication is uh, as uh, uh, all the rest of the surgery, uh, uh, and includes thrombosis, uh, respiratory complication, abdominal collection. Uh, regarding the uh, anastomotic leak, uh, this complication can occur with any technique at any time. Although it is true that it's more frequent during the early postoperative period. Uh, so in the literature, it depends on the technique, but it is estimated around 10-50% of the patient. Uh, this risk uh, is probably avoided thanks to the insertion of uh, pigtail stents uh, removal once the wound healing is controlled, uh, as we explained before, by CT urography uh, around 10 days uh, uh, after the surgery. Uh, in our experience, this complication, we have uh, observed it uh, rarely uh, because we systematically cover the anastomosis with an mental J-flap. If uh, unfortunately uh, an, anastomotic, uh, an anastomotic leak uh, occurs uh, clinically, but it is associated with abdominal pain, fever, and um, to diagnose, uh, we employ a CT scan. 
the management includes uh, the insertion of pigtail stem by endoscopy uh, if the uh, if the uh, pigtail stem were uh, were uh, removed and a catheter in case of continent diversion. Uh, in case of uh, patient uh, of uh, we uh, hemodynamically unstable patient of failure of the endoscopic uh, uh, insertion of the pigtail stem. Uh, sometimes uh, it is necessary to insert percutaneous uh, nephrostomy tuber. And uh, sometimes uh, reimplantation of the ureters may be necessary, and more exceptionally, the transformation of continent pouches into non-continent diversions. Yeah. And um, you mentioned uh, the use of the omento J-flap, and I, and I think you, you mentioned to protect the anastomosis, but you also talk about... Um, empty pelvic syndrome or pelvic burn syndrome. Can you explain as to what that is and, and how do you prevent that from happening? So <clears throat> the empty pelvic syndrome represents uh, one of the major causes of severe postoperative morbidity after pelvic exenteration. Uh, this is syndrome results from the death space in the pelvis after organ removal. Uh, it entails a variety of symptoms, including abscesses formation, bowel obstruction, permanent discharge, bowel perforation, and fistula. Uh, this is why it's uh, so important to prevent this syndrome by filling systematically the pelvis with healthy autologous tissues, such as uh, the omental J-flat we talked before, perforator flaps, uh, or musculocutaneous flap during pelvic exenteration. Uh, these tissues may be employed to cover bowel and urinary anastomosis. Uh, it clearly reduces the rate of this type of complication, in particular, the risk of fistula and abscesses. Yeah. Um, and now wanting to then change gears a little bit to late complications. And, uh, and I know that obviously there, there are several, uh, but I wanted to start with the ureteral uh, stricture. How often does this happen and, uh, and, and what should be done about it when you have that stricture of the ureter at the anastomosis? So <clears throat> the ureteral stricture may be observed around 10% of the patient, depending on the series, uh, and probably is a little bit higher with uh, Miami pouch and urethrosic pointostomy. Uh, this complication can be reduced uh, during the surgery with a wide spatulation of the ureters when performing the urethroenteric anastomosis, tension-free anastomosis, and employing a well-vascularized uh, urethral stamp for the diversion. Uh, most cases of stricture are managed conservatively by endoscopic balloon dilatation, stent insertion, but in cases of uh, severe renal insufficiency or endoscopic failure, uh, nephrostomy, tube, and further reconstructive surgery with urethral reimplantation may be required. Yeah. And, and one, one of the other um, complications that I wanted to ask you about is one that I used to see when we used to perform uh, a lot more of the continent conduits. We, we don't as much anymore, but uh, particularly for the continent conduits, we used to see patients uh, that would develop uh, stones. Um, why, why do these patients develop stones in the neobladder? How frequent are they and, and what should be done about them? So uh, this risk uh, of stone 
it's uh, estimated around 10% of the patient. Um, the, the, the risk is higher, as you said, uh, with continent diversion. And this kind of complication is uh, the reason why we should work closely with other colleagues, in particular uh, urologists. Uh, the origin of urolithiasis is multifactorial. Uh, the stone may be originated from the upper uh, urinary tract or initiated in the reservoir caused by the digestive mucus and the frequent colonization of urolithic bacteria. Uh, in addition, metabolic acidosis uh, facilitates stone formation since uh, reduce the excretion of uh, citrate in the urine, which, you know, uh, plays a major role in the prevention of calcium stone nucleation. Uh, we should not forget that non-absorbable staples or sutures should be avoided as uh, it is well known that uh, they increase the risk of stone formation. Mm. Um, the current treatment for urinary stone do not differ from those employed in patients with native bladder. Uh, it includes uh, urethroscopy, lithotripsy, percutaneous lithotomy, and uh, last resort, uh, uh, extraction by laparoscopy. Yeah. And then uh, my, my next question brings me back to, you know, the days of fellowship. And I think that every fellow has had to uh, face this question at some point uh, during uh, uh, rounds with their faculty um, regarding the most common electrolyte abnormality after urinary diversion and neobladder reconstruction, um, hyperchloremic hypokalemic acidosis. Uh, why does this happen and, and what should be done to address this complication? So uh, this is a really, really rare complication, but uh, as you say, uh, we study rather the, this type of complication in, uh, in the medical faculty. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is produced because uh, the urinary diversion uh, also can associate uh, electrolyte uh, abnormalities that can lead uh, to a subset of metabolic acidosis that is characterized by hyperchloremia and hypokalemia. Uh, it's worth mentioning that uh, all urinary diversion techniques uh, are at risk of metabolic acidosis, although uh, this risk is higher with continent reservoir. So this is explained by the fact that, that uh, uh, the production of ammonium by the urinary tract takes the place in the sodium proton exchanger in the bowel mucosa cells and results in a switch from chloride to bicarbonate. This uh, generates a loss of bicarbonate and a gain of chlor and protons. Uh, clinically, the patient presents uh, asthenia, confusion, uh, sleepiness, and in extreme cases, uh, coma. Um, the treatment consists of uh, restoring the ionic balance by sodium bicarbonate and citrate uh, solution. Uh, this is uh, why it's so important to prevent this complication. And we r recommend the patient to take an oral inflate at uh, at least two liters per day. And in case of continent diversion, such as um, the Miami pouch, to perform regular voiding of the reservoir. Great. Thank you so much. I think that this is a segment of the podcast that many of the residents and fellows are going to be playing back for again and again and again. Uh, so now, Carlos, the, the next question I want to ask you is, do we have any data on patients' 
quality of life after urinary diversion? Is there a better quality of life for the patient with one diversion versus another? Yeah. Uh, in fact, the, 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 there are a few data regarding the quality of life after urinary diversion in gynecological cancer. Uh, in the gynecological literature, uh, two recent publications, including a prospective uh, French uh, series uh, conducive by my boss, Wenael uh, Ferron, uh, found comparable values in terms of quality of life between the continent and non-continent reconstruction one year after the surgery. Uh, however, in data in urologic literature are more controversial. Uh, while uh, two recent meta-analyses uh, in patients with bladder cancer so better health-related quality of life after ileal orthotopic neobladder than with ileal conduit, in particular in those cases uh, with German and fit patients, mm -hmm. other studies uh, found no significant differences in quality of life between continent and uh, incontinent diversion. Probably uh, the differences in the duration of the follow-up, uh, the use of different standardized uh, quality of life questionnaires, and the heterogeneity of the diseases included in the studies could probably explain the divergences uh, among uh, gynecologic and urologic literature. So now, um, coming to the conclusion of the uh, of the podcast, one of the things I always uh, uh, will ask uh, th those that, that that discuss these topics with me is what you do. Uh, you know, certainly, what do you do in your institution? What is your preferred urinary diversion after uh, pelvic exenteration, and why? Uh, in our institution, uh, we do not have our preferred technique, uh, and uh, we try to tailor and to offer the patient all the techniques uh, of urinary reconstruction and pelvic reconstruction after a detailed preoperative discussion where all the pros and cons uh, are exposed uh, to the patient. Uh, but uh, ultimately, the technique uh, is performed according to uh, the patient preferences. Uh, to give you further details uh, regarding our experience after pelvic accentuation, we performed the self-catheterizable uh, Miami pouch in around 40% of the patient. Around 35% uh, of the patients undergo uh, brachial ileal conduit. 15% uh, double barrelet wet colostomy, uh, less of 10% uh, ileal uh, orthopic neobladder. Yeah, very interesting, uh, the distribution. Uh, so, Carlos, thank you so much. Obviously, uh, I've uh, really enjoyed reading the article, and I've, of course, obviously enjoyed uh, discussing uh, with you. Uh, I think that uh, this is one uh, that uh, many of us in gynecologic oncology are going to keep coming back to uh, prior to uh, and after performing urinary diversion. So I really want to thank you and your entire team for submitting this uh, this manuscript. Uh, thank you so much. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Pedro.